Greetings, Midnight Warriors, and welcome to a frightfully fortnightly and completely obligatory Halloween edition of War Starts at Midnight. I'm Hunter Cates. And I'm Chris Gallier. On today's show, we're reviewing Guillermo del Toro's latest gothic horror film, Crimson Peak. Then in special... (coughs) Jeez, I'm sorry, Chris. It's, It's the fall weather. I got something in my throat. Yeah, at least you got it out. Yeah. Then in special features, we will discuss our favorites of the horror genre during Scary Movies, Two Testimonies on Terror. And finally, we'll wrap up the show as we always do with some really rad recommendations. But first... Sounds like you've got it in your throat as well. Yeah. Oh, no, it's gone. We're good. Yeah, it'll probably dip in and out. Uh So, Chris, a little... uh, Indie Darling hit uh, is coming out that you and I have been talking about for some time. Mm-hmm. Of course, it's uh, Star Wars The Force Awakens. Right. And it released its third and perhaps final trailer, I believe the final trailer, this past Monday. The, maybe maybe the final, like, theatrical. We're going to see... Little blips here and Tons there. of TV spots and other, like, things, I'm sure. Like, I mean, do you remember when Episode One came out and they literally had, like, segmented... I think it was, like, five or six segments of, like... These TV ads are meant to appeal to mothers. These TV ads are meant to like very, very narrow. But like the segments that they knew were big money earners. You, you're looking at me with a blank. So I you know, know. Yeah, I missed okay. this. Um, I I remember because I can remember like trying to download them all. You know, from real player or QuickTime player. You know, sort of like it, it would take. I I would start downloading and it would take like two and a half hours at that point on like a 56k mm-hmm. uh, connection. And but it was they, absolutely worth it. it. Yeah, absolutely worth it. Or even like when they when they re-released episode one in 3D, which I don't think they never got around to the rest of those, did they? I, I, I don't even remember. Oh, yeah, they did do episode one. No, I don't think they did. Um, when they, they did that and the, the one that's like meant to just appeal to kids. Have you at least seen that, right? Mm-mm. No? Okay, no. I'm going to put this in the show notes. It's it's wonderfully terrible. Like there's this guy doing this like. Hurry up, Qui-Gon. Better get to the celebration. And then it cuts to the very end of them, you know, doing the song and dance and everything. Mm-hmm. Qui-Gon's dead by that point. They just, they, but they just slam him together like, oh, hey, look, it's a whole bunch of fun. Well, maybe George Lucas will insert him after the fact since. Yeah, you're probably yeah, he right. He probably inserted him into the party after uh-huh. the fact. I actually, if I probably saw those. There's no way I didn't see them. Uh-huh. I've just blocked it out. However, what I haven't blocked out is the latest and perhaps final trailer that appeals not just to mothers or to children, but it seems like the entire living, breathing human world. I, I wouldn't know. I have and blocked you, it out. I've you, gone on complete all blackout. Right. So you ha- now, did you do this prior to or just this one? Uh, this one. This is the first, like, I mean, after, I guess after that little teaser thing that they, the kind of behind the scenes thing, I was like, you know what? My, my hopes cannot get higher for this. I've been Pretty pessimistic. You had a new hope, you might say. I, I I had a bit of a new hope, and yeah, so I I'd been pretty pessimistic about JJ and and that whole thing, and so I got above you know the the line where I was like, oh maybe maybe I will enjoy this, and I'm just going to block everything out and write it out until we you know we'll see what happens, and I don't want to overanalyze like every shot for like yeah that oh, what's seems, going on yeah, here yeah that seems particularly silly to me people doing that I have probably made up for your lack of watching and just watching it myself but every single time i'm not really looking for clues so much as just having a having a mid-afternoon pick me up it's getting Mm -hmm. a little slow Mm -hmm. or i'm or something bothers me at work so i watch this and it improves my mood twitter's becoming a landmine now though because like people are always talking about it i never know if they're 
talking about like theories on something or if they're just, or if they know yeah, something or if they're yeah, throwing it out they're, there, they're just, they're just pulling. So yeah. So, uh, I I've been trying to avoid trying to avoid everything as, as far as I can. I know I won't be able to go completely clean, but well, that is a good transition to my next question. Have you pre-ordered your tickets? I did. And what day? Uh, for Thursday at 8 p.m. Okay, so then there is a chance that information could leak out in the hour that you are seeing it after everyone yeah, else. Yeah. Uh, I was not so fortunate. I did the Tuesday night thing, whenever, or excuse me, the Monday night thing, because it was really stirring Monday night football, uh, trying to listen or trying to order tickets. Uh-huh. And I did Fandango. I don't think I did MovieTickets.com, but it crashed too. And then also Warren Theater all crashed. I was okay. unable to get. Okay. So yeah, you told me about this and you were like, ah, oh, Fandango. Oh no. I, and I never even tried Fandango or anything. I just went straight to Cinemark and, uh, Cinemark it's well in the server wasn't slow. No. What time fine. did you do it? Um, after like, uh, some people that I'd follow on Twitter were saying, Hey, I got my tickets. And I was like, Oh crap, I forgot. And got on, got, I mean, it was, it had to have been fairly early because I Still got decent, you know, I got my pick of seats and that sort of thing. Uh, but I don't know. It, at some point, it was, I had zero problems at all. See, and that's astounding to me because I kid you not, I sat there for 30 minutes trying to make it happen. And at one point oh, in time, I. This is a five minute execution. Yeah, I don't know what. At one point in time, I thought I ordered them and uh-huh. then it was doing the little spinning dial analyze thing mm. or saying, you know, don't turn off your computer, yeah, yeah. refresh. It did that all night <laughs> long. I woke up the next day and it was still doing it. I thought, well, this isn't going to work out. Yeah. So I wound up having to get tickets for 8 p.m. 24 hours after you will be seeing it on the actual opening day, not the early screening open day, which kind of raises an interesting point. If you are a fan of pop, some sort of pop culture, if you don't see it first, then does it really count? Uh, You know, I, for me, it's more about convenience than anything. Like I definitely, if I'm, if I'm a fan and and if I'm really looking forward to movie, I want to see it the opening weekend, but more not necessarily the opening day or the opening time. Not necessarily. Uh, honestly, what dictates it more is like the actual time, the the theater screening time. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, back when it was just you would have a midnight screening or two uh, for something, I never went because I don't want to be, you know, getting home at two thirty, three, three in the morning and then you know, it's always on a Thursday. So then I'd have to go to work in the morning. Like I I'm too old for that. I'm, I'm an old, old man. Well, did you do it during high school? No, I didn't. Fascinating. I, I like this, this might be the one place where I'm more of the old man than you. That That is um, astounding to me. Yeah. I, I need, I need my sleep. You were I mean, the anti-millennial on this issue. Yeah. I'll, I mean, I'll go to a midnight movie of like Eraserhead or something, but, uh, I like a Thursday night, midnight movie of a movie that's going to be playing in theaters everywhere for, you know, a while. Like, you know, I'll, I'll see it Friday night or I'll see it Saturday afternoon at a matinee. Well, then I think the solution here, Chris, is that you and I switch tickets because if you don't care and I'm, I'm, well, no, but, at but that's scene. the thing is I, I'm not, I'm not seeing a midnight screening. I'm seeing, I'm seeing it at the time that I wanted. Like I was, I was very happy to see that there was a eight o'clock. I, honestly, I would have preferred seven, but, uh, I didn't want to see it in 3d. And so the non 3d screen, the first screening they had was. Eight o'clock. Well, all I can assume is that my failure is due to some sort of karmic or perhaps even something, some disturbance in the force mm-hmm. that is prohibiting me. So I'm not going to be able to get on the Internet at all on Friday afternoon, uh-huh. Friday day, the entire day. So, I mean, I guess I guess that's my punishment for doing something wrong in a past life. 
Yeah, I guess so. I mean, or maybe it's a test of your Jedi abilities. Of my I mean, Jedi abilities. Yeah, if if the Force is really strong in you, you will be able to resist. Uh, well, I can already tell you right now that the Force is very, very weak in me, so Friday <laughs> is going to be a struggle. Uh, so speaking of the Force, the dark side is very, very strong with my stalker. Let's hate Hunter. And I understand that we got a new email from him. We did. Yeah. And what did he have to say this week? Uh, he had to say that, well, first I'd like to do a correction. He didn't point this out. Our, you know, your stalker is the most, you know, kind sort of uh, anonymous. Which, which makes it scarier. <laughs> uh, not, yeah. Maybe it does. Like the the, the creepy dude with the, the smile. that He's just... like the villain in Mission Impossible uh, Rogue Nation. Uh-huh. That Truman Capote one you pointed uh-huh. out. That's the kind of villain he is. <laughs> um, or she. We don't or know. She, yeah. Um, well, actually, but, we do know, but go ahead. We do know who it is well, now. Well, I, I would like to make a quick correction. We were calling this uh, anonymous listener a Hunter Hater. It's actually Hunter Hates is the name that comes across. Uh, a play on Hunter Cakes, Yeah, there, okay. Very cute. Um, but basically got an email last week uh, about, uh, well, you know, talking a little bit more about beer and um, I think a little bit about Blade Runner. And we had a little... Uh, back and forth about how many cuts there were just um, a very innocuous kind of benign conversation. Well, no, it was, it was just, good conversation. Like I, I like, I like this conversation. Like I mean, it? for, for the possibilities of what it could be from anonymous internet vitriol, this is pretty, yeah, uh, absolutely. pretty okay. Um, but then also uh, taking claim to being Godzilla, which is why I say he or she, because if it's Matthew Broderick's Godzilla, which would be the pure terror, then mm-hmm. it's a she, right? Well, hermaphrodite. It, okay. Yeah. Um, honestly, I would rather it be Matthew Broderick's Godzilla because to think that the original Japanese one is nebishy and dislikes me would be too much to bear. Okay. It'd be just as painful as having to wait 24 hours to see Star Wars The Force Awakens. Uh-huh. The the kind of geek blowback going right now is is just overwhelming to me. One, I have to wait a day <laughs> to see Star Wars, and two, I find out that Godzilla actually doesn't like me. So the one thing that can kind of temper that is if it's the Matthew Broderick Godzilla. Have, have you considered, though, that maybe this is like the middle school thing where – Godzilla's pretending to not like you because Godzilla really, really likes you. You know, actually, Chris, I hadn't considered that. You've See? just you've just revived my my spirits on this. Uh-huh. I have, like you do, a new hope. Uh-huh. This you know, this is all I feel like this is all going going to culminate in at the end of summer you you had this little dating game thing and uh we talked off mic about the John Hamm on the the dating game show mm-hmm. uh way back in like the 90s i think this is i feel like this is all going to culminate in you and godzilla and a couple maybe a couple other haters uh hunter haters on some sort of weird television game show well or maybe what it can all culminate in is me and godzilla and then you and dangerous men kind of having a double date and go- <laughs> maybe maybe black pepper the uh the quote-unquote bad guy in dangerous men he's he's been very active on twitter lately uh, oh. which I, which has been very enjoyable. Well, there you go. Villains win out in the end, don't they? Uh-huh. They win our hearts, at least. They win our hearts, at least. Well, I guess that's as good a transition as any to our review today, which is, of course, about villains and ghosts and goblins. So stick around, ladies and gentlemen, as Chris and I discuss Guillermo del Toro's latest, Crimson Peak. Beware of Crimson Peak. Ghosts are real. That much I know. I've seen them all my life. There are parts of the house that are unsafe. 
house as old as this one becomes in time a living thing. Never go below this level. It starts holding on to things. Has anyone died in this house? Specific deaths, violent deaths. In your own best interest, proceed with caution. Keeping them alive when they shouldn't be. If you're here with me, give me a signal. She has everything. Guillermo del Toro is the type of guy studios love to promote as a visionary director. And rightly so. The dude creates idiosyncratic worlds that push his pictures far beyond the generic genre in which he works. But Hollywood wasn't always so gaga for Guillermo. He had a pretty rough start with his English-language debut, Mimic, the 1997 horror film starring Mira Sorvino and Josh Brolin. By del Toro's account, the film studio, Miramax, foiled the director's ambitious attempts to elevate the average creature feature to something greater than the sum of its parts. They seized creative control in post-production and released a bastardized cut which del Toro detested. Audiences weren't too keen on it either. The film failed to perform at the box office and received mixed marks from critics. It wasn't until a decade later that Guillermo truly garnered the good graces of Hollywood with Pan's Labyrinth, the Oscar-nominated fairy tale set in the midst of the Spanish Civil War. For Del Toro's newest film, he teamed up with an old friend, Mimic's co-writer Matthew Robbins. Crimson Peak is a gothic horror picture set at the turn of the century. Mia Wasikowska stars as Edith Cushing, a well-to-do aspiring writer who reluctantly falls in love with the British Baroness Sir Thomas Sharp, played by Loki himself, Tom Hiddleston. Upon marrying Sharp, Edith leaves her home in Buffalo, New York, to live with her new husband and his sister Lucille on their family estate. It's formerly known as Allerdale Hall, but colloquially referred to as the titular Crimson Peak. Leaves and snow fall through the center of the home's crumbling ceiling, while the land's rich red clay bleeds through the floorboards. As the name suggests, every frame of this film is packed with lush colors, from deep reds and steely blues to vibrant yellows and pale greens. It's a kaleidoscopic haunted house of horrors. So Hunter, I'm curious. Does this picture from the imagination of Guillermo del Toro help sustain his reputation as a visionary director? Or do you think Universal's marketing folks are just riding on the fumes of his magical masterpiece? And furthermore, back on episode 8, the Babadook proved to be just a little too much for the nerves of one Mr. Cates. So tell me, will you be requiring a nightlight to get some shut-eye on All Hallows' Eve tonight? Well, hopefully, Chris, I'll be so drunk that I won't actually need a nightlight to go to sleep. I'll just pass out okay. and then wake up in a, in a, with a hangover. That's a pretty good plan. Yeah, the, the best way to fight fear I've found from watching horror movies is to get really drunk. Because even if you do get killed off, and I think in a horror movie I would... Yeah, it's, it's kind of like surviving the Titanic, I think. Yeah, it's it's one of those things. It's going to happen one way or the other, so you might as well just drink your way through it. Uh-huh. So, But we can talk more likely about which one of us is more prone to survive in special features. Okay. Discussing this picture, uh, I, you mentioned Guillermo del Toro being called a visionary director. I actually, I was thinking about this as you were speaking. The only people who seem to be qualified as visionary directors that I can recall offhand are him and Zack Snyder. And both of them were in Legendary Pictures. Uh So I think they might, Legendary Pictures might actually have a copyright on the phrase from the imagination of visionary director blank. Because, of course, Zack Snyder got that with Watchmen. You're putting him in in a camp that I really, really don't like. Well, no, I'm not. Legendary is. I guess. uh, Who else has been called a visionary director? I would not be surprised at all if someone like, and this is not helping the case of of like what what visionary director means but 
I'm almost positive uh, M. Night Shyamalan at some point has been labeled a visionary director or J.J. Abrams or I mean, there's there's guys I I think it's it's a weird quality. It's not necessarily something that that dictates like it's going to be a great story and all of that. It's it's more like they can build a world. I think that's what what makes a quote unquote visionary director. But then again, you've got someone like Zack Snyder who he just occupies pre-existing worlds and then fills it with a lot of bright lights and pretty spectacle and mm-hmm. slow-mo. So it's one, I mean, I not think just slow-mo, they, they ramp in and sl- out. Yes. Yeah, slow-mo and then high speed. Yeah. Uh, I think the, I think the takeaway from this is visionary is just one of those ambiguous terms that means when you think about it, nothing particularly considering film as a visionary medium, they're all visionary directors. Well, but I, I think what it's saying is that they, maybe it's that the visual aspects of the films are the things that really define the director's work versus like, I mean, like a Richard Linklater is going to be more defined by his script. Well, but, and, but to, to that point though, I would say particularly with something like boyhood. I mean, that was a grand experiment in filmmaking. That's a more visionary picture. When you think about it, it's, if you on, visionary it, is innovative. If, if you're, if you're using visionary in the proper sense, I agree, but I don't think that's how they, but use in it. the legendary pictures definition of the yeah, word, it yeah. means that you have really yeah. pretty pictures. And, and honestly, boyhood was not a magnificent looking movie. I mean, it's, it's don't get me wrong. It was a crowning achievement of, you know, just a, a visionary way of filmmaking. Right. But, um, from a visual standpoint, if we're going to get in that literal, like get stuck on, on, on the prefix of it, like it's, it's okay. I mean, I couldn't look at it and tell you, oh, this is definitely Richard Linklater. Whereas I can look at, I can look at probably a frame from any Guillermo del Toro movie and be like, oh, that's probably Guillermo del Toro. Well, okay. So speaking of this picture that Guillermo del Toro directed and him being a visionary director, the vision I got, and bear with me for a moment as I make this analogy, the vision I got while watching this movie was of a Western. And the reason I say that is because the Western in many ways has been underrepresented over the past quarter century or so. And I believe that's because the Western stopped being a setting for stories and started becoming a genre into itself. The transition point there and how it reminds me of Crimson Peak is that Crimson Peak is so clearly a gothic horror picture and gothic horror pictures are made so rarely anymore mm-hmm. that Guillermo del Toro really didn't try to set a good story in this universe. He just tried to make the movie about the genre and so this, to me, is a very – this is going to sound more dismissive than I feel about it. It was a very paint-by-numbers gothic horror movie. I would totally agree with you in the first, like, 20 minutes or so of this film and and in places throughout. It's – I'll say it's a bit of an uneven picture, um, and, and, and there's a lot of things that factor into that. But um, I kind of liked the setup. Like, there, there are times in the opening – where, you know, where, where you're just getting sort of Edith's story and, and the story of the, the sharp siblings and Edith's father and all that, you know, just, just getting the setting and, and whatnot, where it feels like he's just playing in the playground of the gothic horror picture of, of like this, you know, it's a quasi classic Hollywood sort of approach, but then he really subverts that by the end. And I really appreciate that. Um, and, and that's, it's, like, I don't know. It, with with Del Toro, I feel like a lot of times, particularly with his English language films, and I'd like to talk about this a little bit at some point, um, kind of the difference between his English films and his Spanish films. Um, well, the Spanish ones are in Spanish. Yes, there's, there's, there's that. Um, 
but there's, there's some uneven bits, you know, with things that seem to, I don't know if it's a translation thing or, or what it is, but there are things that fall a little flat. I feel in his English language films that I don't typically see in his, uh, in his Spanish films, which are more fluid. Yeah, I think so. And more, more immersive. Um, and you know, other than Tom Hiddleston, I think every actor, especially every main actor at some point in this kind of comes and goes, you know, I love Mia Vosikovska. I love Jessica Chastain. I don't love Charlie Hunnam. Um, Charlie Hunnam is probably the only one who's like across the board, just bad. Yeah. Um, what, what are you doing here? Let's discuss that real yeah. quickly. I believe he is Australian. And in my experience, people who come from the United Kingdom or its realms, former uh-huh. realms, uh, usually are able to pull off a pretty good American accent. It's Americans doing British accents that usually fail. Right. His accent in this is terrible. It's abysmal. I mean, I don't know what I know he's speaking English, but I don't know what accent it is. It's mm-hmm. not an American accent. It's this hybridization or perhaps a bastardization of of something. It's it's weird because it's not even like I I had said in my notes that it comes and goes, but it's not even that. Like it's it's no, it's, it's not very like, consistent. It's, it's, it's just very, consistently it's bad. Consistently impossible to like. It's not an accent, and it's like really to to the point that I was trying to early on trying to make some sort of like okay, well maybe he's he plays like a uh, ophthalmologist, and um, I was thinking okay maybe he he came over here from somewhere and then he's trying to like but no he's just he's bad. Um, he's, and- he's, he's kind of like Keanu Reeves in Bram Stoker's Dracula, where you wonder <laughs> why, what the director saw in this, what yeah, he was thinking. That by was, casting that was the thing with, with, uh, Pacific Rim too, though. It's like, I don't understand. He like, I think I like Pacific Rim more than a lot of people do. I really don't like Hunnam in that. I think, I think Charlie Hunnam is like, I don't know. He's like the poor man's army hammer. Which isn't even like Army Hammer's not you know a great household name and hasn't been doing much great since Social Network. I think I think he was outstanding in that, but ever since it's been kind of and and I don't know. To me, he's he's the of all the people you want to be like. Um, it's funny that you should say Army Hammer. I'm going to diverge a little bit to tell a, a little story here. Oh, Army story Hammer. time! Yeah, it's story time with Hunter. Uh, for all of those of you who don't know, Army Hammer actually has a connection to Tulsa, Oklahoma, where we are from. His mother uh, went to school here. His mother went to school with my mother, and his mother was always known as being uh, the the girl for whom every good thing could that conceivably happen. She was the one who life always turned out uh, roses. So my mom said, well, of course her son would turn out to be a movie star. <laughs> the takeaway from that is that her, that this lady's son has become Army Hammer, and then my mom's kid has turned out to be me. So after she said that, I think, wow, gee, thanks, Mom. Well, sorry, you know. <laughs> so, that, was, that was a much more personal story than I was expecting. Yeah, it was, it was very dark, but how perfect for a Halloween episode that I tell a story like that. But I think we're all in agreement that, yes, Charlie Hunnam was a major uh, black mark on this picture. Yeah, it was it was. Right. Um, I mean, can we talk about Tom Hiddleston for a little bit to kind of palate cleanse? Like, yeah, well, it may palate cleanse. Let's see here. Oh, okay. Um, I I really like Hiddleston in this. I think he's the only the only one that like throughout is just rock solid. And he he has a bit of a chameleon performance that he's got to pull off. He's playing multiple characters to you know depending on who he's talking to essentially. And um, I think he does great. Like he there. He's given some kind of rough, 
you know, quasi Victorian dialogue or whatever here that like everyone else is, but seems to spit it out better. And maybe it's just because he has a British accent and he's charming in that way. Well, no, I think him out of out of even among British actors, he is particularly Victorian. He looks Victorian. He mm-hmm. speaks Victorian. And so even though he did a good job, I agree wholeheartedly. His casting and his performance kind of represents to me what was wrong with the picture entirely, which is that it is it is so obvious. There's nothing about this picture and about Tom Hiddleston that surprised me. And so when you have a gothic horror picture, a suspense picture, there has to be some surprises. Whether it's in the moment of a ghost popping out of of the drawer, or it's the story entirely. And so he lacked surprises. His casting, while perfectly appropriate, was obvious. And so that's why I say this was a paint-by-numbers gothic horror picture. Can we... We we don't typically do this, but can we get into spoilers here to well, really? Before, okay, before we get to spoilers, one more thing that's non-spoilery. Okay. You mentioned the Babadook. The Babadook kept me up at night because I think it was stop motion. I don't think I can really be scared by CG. This is okay. This is a great like transition into spoilers because my biggest problem with this movie is probably the fact that it's promoted as this ghost story haunted house movie. I mean, and I had only seen the trailer a couple of times because one because. Honestly, the trailer I didn't think was that good. It looked it looked like somebody trying to make a paint by numbers Guillermo del Toro trailer. Um, was was how I felt going in. But I really liked del Toro, um, and so I was I was invested with that, with that, and with the cast. I was I was in, um, and it turns out to be a very different film. I don't think it's trying. To, I mean, like I multiple people I spoke to when I said that we were going to. Uh, do this review said, I don't, I don't know if I can listen to that one. I, I don't think I'm going to be able to see Crimson Peak because it looks too scary. And I coming out of it, I don't think it was intended to be a super scary. Like it's the ghosts are there for atmosphere more than anything. But I do agree with you on the, like they, the, the Babadook, the way that the Babadook moved and everything much more terrifying than this sort of, immaculately conceived or these multiple immaculately conceived ghosts that kind of have this like flowy inky stuff coming off of them and whatnot. A quick fun fact. uh, I I noticed in looking at the credits afterwards that Doug Jones, who uh, he plays, he played the, I think it was Abraham, the fish monster in Hellboy. And then also pan the titular pan and pan's labyrinth. Yes, exactly. He was actually, um, the ghost of Edith's mother, who, I mean, that's not a, I mean, that's like the very opening of the, of the movie. Wow, and Chris, then, no reason to see the movie now. Jeez. Yeah. And then, and then he plays at least one other ghost, uh, in this as well, which I thought was interesting. I guess, you know, for, it was all for the performance because it is all CG. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Let's from here, do you have anything else or can we, can we dive into spoilers? Cause We're I think that's out. where the meat of this conversation I agree, really yes. is. Okay. Um, so the thing that I, I I would agree with you on the like paint by numbers gothic horror thing, if it wasn't for the fact that I don't think this is a gothic horror movie per se. Like I think I think he sets you up in that, and then he gives you this interesting Bluebeard story that I don't think is entirely trying to, um, you know, trying to give you big twists and whatnot. At least you know I there they it's either that or he's giving you way too much foreshadowing to make it pretty obvious, like where things are going. Um, but I still, I, I enjoyed that. Uh, what mystery was still there. I mean, there, there are certain things that come to light as the movie goes along that are kind of, 
Well, we're, since we're in spoiler territory, oh, yeah, what mystery are you talking about? Um, the the big thing. So it's it's I guess two things. The the overall Bluebeard story, which is is what this ultimately is. It's Tom Hiddleston uh, is going around marrying these, these women and then murdering them to take their money, mm-hmm. um, and and marrying women who either have no family or whose family. Uh, it turns out actually his sister Lucille has killed um, because she's Lucille. Uh, so I, I like Chastain in this role, even if she doesn't always work because she's, she's kind of part vamp and part lady Macbeth. I mean, she's the one who really wears the pants in this in a fine uh, British accent. I felt. Yeah. 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 Pretty uh, much not, better than Charlie, Charlie Hunnam's American. Yeah. Not, anyway. not surprising though. I mean, just Chastain's great. There's, yeah. there's only, there's a couple of times when it's just really stiff, dialogue in general, like lines that it would be difficult for anyone to deliver where I felt like she kind of wavers. Um, but you know, she's the one who really wears the pants in this incestuous relationship. Um, that's spoiler number two. (laughs) That's spoiler. That's spoiler number two. Yeah. That's, that's the big thing, which, um, I mean, I feel like really you, you get that idea pretty early on. You get that idea pretty early on. So whenever they finally show them not doing it, but doing something, which is clearly (laughs) sexual, a sad Gothic hand job. Yeah. Okay. Whenever you see that, that seemed completely unnecessary to me because it was more creepy. No, I think it's it's really informative because it kind of shows that Thomas is this conflicted character with Lucille being the older sister who has kind of forced him into everything that he's done his entire life. I mean, murdering, uh, his mother and this incestuous relationship. I mean, it's, there's there, it's the exact perfect sort of, uh, reveal of it because up until that point, um, you know, she's, uh, Edith is waking up in the middle of the night and Thomas is never there. And it's pretty easy to, you know, put together that, Oh, he's probably sleeping with the sister, which turns out to be. That's, I mean, if I were a wife, that's the, that's the, <laughs> well, no, the, not the conclusion. I, 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 would I, don't, I don't mean for her. I mean, for the audience. Yeah. 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 Um, and, you know, it's it's kind of convenient because it allows Edith to roam the house and discover things she's not supposed to discover. Um, so it works on on two levels there. Um, but I, you know, I was thinking, oh, he's you know, he's off paying his sister like I had something um, of that in, in my notes. And then, so when, and then we get that pretty, like it's, you don't see anything, but it's a pretty explicit sex scene when uh, Edith and Thomas go to get Finally stuck, do it, yeah. get, get stuck at the, uh, the depot. Um, pretty, I mean, Guillermo put, you know, spent some time. It wasn't just your typical, like, okay, well, we'll have you lay there with, uh, you know, with the covers over your chest and do a little, like, there's there's some changes in positions and some hip movement and they really got into it. Um and that's a very passionate uh scene of 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 them finally consummating their their marriage which I don't know how long they had been there but I mean it's probably got to be at least weeks and this is the first time that they've actually um they've actually had sex for for the first time as husband and wife. Uh, so then whenever you get that sad gothic hand job, it informs so much about the character and his relationship with the sister because he's doing it, but he's really not that into it. He's only pressured by Lucille to do all of these things. But here's the thing, though, is this even if it even if it wasn't meant to be, which I think it was, but it was marketed and presented. And, and I think marketing made, was awful. Well, I think made to be a horror movie. It was a horror movie. And so by focusing more on character development at the expense of suspense and horror, you wind up with a, a weaker picture because 
I'm I'm less impressed by I, the horror because they spent so much time trying to unveil the the psychology of these characters. Whenever really what we want is an effective, sustaining, unexpected, subversive horror. And what it wound up being is just like every other gothic horror, but it just showed you more. Because I, because when you think about it, every gothic horror movie, the ghosts are usually a consequence of the living characters. Mm-hmm. And so, as you said, you already figured out he was banging his sister. And then we just, we see it. What I mean, I, I can see where you're coming from, where it adds something to it. But what it adds detracts from everything else, which is kind of the, the sense of unease. But I, I feel like, what I'm saying is I feel like the gothic horror genre, the themes are, they're just setting. They're not really what he's focused on. And ultimately, if we want to get down to brass tacks on exactly what he's doing here and exactly what I love about this, there's, you know, basically in the in the third act, uh, Charlie Hunnam's character, Dr. Whatever, um, Dr. Can't Keep an Accent, shows up at Crimson Peak and uh, to basically to try to rescue Edith. And I was so disappointed when that happened because um, and and looking back, it was like I had. I had kind of figured out where this was ending, but then when that happens, it's like, Oh no, they're, they're going to, they're going to undermine what they've built up, which is like Edith is really the, she is the only hero in this entire movie really. And she doesn't need a man to rescue her. She's going to get out on her own. She doesn't, she doesn't need the love story. And then Hunnam's character shows up and I'm like, Oh man, he's going to be the knight in shining armor. And they're going to do some just forced hand, whatever. And dude ends up getting stabbed and does he survive? I guess, I guess, I guess he does because yeah, because Thomas asks him where, where should I stab you? And, and that whole thing, but he's pretty inconsequential. Like he basically shows up and has been very quickly uh, dismissed and, and not used anymore. And I, and I love that. I love that uh, he gives you something that feels conventional and then says, Nope, we're going to we're going to have Edith be the one the the true hero. She's going to be her own hero. She's going to be and you know it goes it it was pretty obvious from you know the this setup, you know. We get uh I can't remember who it is. Somebody talking with her her father about, "Oh, she's she's strong-willed and and, and stubborn." And he's like, "Oh, I love her that way." And uh and then you get the the little catty back and forth with there's some uh there's some elitist woman uh who is making fun of her and says, Oh, you think you're Jane Austen? Well, don't you know, Jane Austen died a spinster and she, you know, quips back. Well, actually I'd prefer to be Mary Shelley and she died a widow. And I mean, that's probably what the first 10, 15 minutes. And that gives you, you know, exactly where this is all going to going to culminate. And that once again, was not a surprise, but I love the way he executed it. But she was less, lest we forget. She was indeed saved by a man. She was saved by, ghost thomas at the very end who showed up like like casper and distracted his sister long enough for her well but she she could have she could have just as easily been like oh look i mean because i don't i don't know why that that is a i'll give you like it's kind of weird that lucille is like oh i'm gonna kill you oh wait what and how long does it take people to become ghosts in this uh, universe because um, it's not not long it's pretty instantaneous well i mentioned casper a second ago it was kind of like i don't know if you've seen the casper from the mid 90s it's kind of like when bill pullman spoiler alert when bill Uh pullman uh Uh dove over the side of the cliff in the car and then he pops up a ghost yeah you just instant ghost transformation um but it uh and and maybe you know he's been tormented his entire life so obviously he's going to come back and haunt his sister 
I mean, I, that, that's, that's the argument I'm going to make just off the top of my head. Um, but there are some, I, I, well, okay. I, well then wait a minute. Were the ghosts real or were they all imaginary? Were they in the character's head? That's, that's an interesting thing, which I don't, I haven't fully unpacked exactly what, because I mean, she says it, it, there's, there's this weird, uh, what's the, what's the snake that's eating its own tail. Um, you're, I thought that was just called a snake eating its own tail. Uh, no, it starts, it starts with an A. I can't remember the name. Anyway, it's, it's a weird sort of that thing because it starts out with Edith has written this book and um, she gives the, the manuscript to some folks and they're like, Oh, you're a woman. Shouldn't it be a love story? Whatnot. And then basically at the end, which once again, not a surprise, but uh, satisfying. I thought uh, it's revealed that the movie you've been watching has been her, uh, her story. Uh Probably. I mean, it could, it could be that she wrote it. No, I guess she, she wrote another one because they, they burned it. Okay. So maybe it's not that anyway. Uh, she's still like, it's people are go oh, a ghost story. She's like, well, it's not really a ghost story. The ghosts are metaphors for other things, which is what's happening here. So I don't know. I, I guess you would have to say it kind of has to be because her mother's ghost says, beware of Crimson Peak, you know, very early on. Um, Here's the thing is I have, I think, as much uh, respect for Guillermo del Toro as you do, but you feel that you clearly feel this is more has more layers and I mm-hmm. feel it has less layers. And, and I felt I mean, to be to be clear, like in the middle of this movie, I wasn't sure it did. I was I was kind of disappointed, but um, I think it has such a solid third act that really brings it all together. I'm, you know, I'm really excited to watch this again and sort of unpack the thematic things, knowing exactly where it's going and knowing exactly how it's playing to see, uh, to see how it views a second time. Well, then let me ask you this is if it indeed is as smart as you feel it was, do you think that took away from the horror? And if it, if the intelligence of of what it was trying to say takes away from the horror, is that, is that not a bad thing then? Um, I, I do think it takes away from the horror. I think that kind of is, his style a lot of times with things that are, that are more in the horror uh, camp though. Like, I mean, I, I don't think I would necessarily describe Pan's Labyrinth as a horror film. It has some really dark, you know, it's, it's an adult fairy tale as I think Roger Ebert said. Mm-hmm. Um, but something like the devil's backbone, which, you know, once again is dealing with ghosts and, and that sort of thing it, or, or his very first film Kronos, which I love, um, which is a vampire movie, a very, a very odd, very original sort of vampire story. Um, they're not like, I I feel like they're using the genre to then address something even different. Like he loves, I think he loves genre and he loves genre setting, but then he get he goes beyond it and then does something else with it. So, I mean, from a like scary perspective of like, if you're just, if you're just going into this movie, wanting to get scared, I, I don't think it's going to happen. I, I agree with you, but I like that he's doing something with horror genre that it seems like if, if anyone else is doing, not many other people are doing. And I like that. I, I like his little, his little cove that he's, but I think I would have appreciated more if, as, as we've discussed, if the, if the layers didn't in many ways undermine the suspense and the horror mm-hmm. to me, this was, as I've said, it was a Gothic horror picture. You've got the ghosts, you've got the haunted house, you've got the family that's hiding something, but then, Right, it doesn't. It, to me, it, I don't feel it subverts that. What it does is it just goes that next step. It's kind of like I don't know if you've seen this, but it's kind of like Gus Van Sant's remake of Psycho, wherever it's shot by shot. But the one shot they added was Norman Bates. Forget my language. 
knocking it off while watching uh, the girl in the shower. Mm-hmm. So it's just, it's saying, let's I, modernize this classic story I, by I adding this sexual element. I think it's a, I think it's much more than that though. I mean, he's, he's clearly saying, here's the classic thing that I mean, with the, with Hunnam's character showing up, like here's the classic thing that you always get the knight in shining armor and nope, we're not going to like, I'm going to push it right up to the edge and then just, just take him out of the story completely. Um, there, there are several moments of that sort of thing where, he he turns it back into Edith's story again. And Edith but that's as- but that's still a gothic trope, though. Is that is in many ways the gothic horror is even though we've talked about eighties pictures and but slashers killing off the girl. Classic horror really has that element of female empowerment. In many ways, you can make the case that uh, it's it's one of the original feminist genres. Hmm. Okay. Or I, I, because when you, because when you think about it, what is most horror, but the vulnerable being attacked by the, the, the terror and since, uh, the, but, so like but the even, husband, for instance, but even the, you know, in, in the classic stuff, there's still like a man assisting where literally like the man shows up to assist and then is taken out almost immediately. You know, like he, it's, it, he carries her around for like a scene. And so I, I, Meet me halfway on this, at least. Like I, I, I thought it looked nice. <laughs> I thought it looked nice. It did. It. I mean, his stuff. Yeah, his stuff always looks and, nice. And here's another thing: is and this was and th- this really bugged me. Here's the thing about ghosts and CG ghosts. Whenever he filmed them in the background as these black kind of smoky wraiths, that was top notch, magnificent filmmaking. I hated. I hated how he would do close ups of the ghosts. And stay on the ghosts for too well, long. Well, I mean, I think part of that was trying to get across that these are multiple ghosts and have have died in multiple vicious right. ways. Um, Here's the thing about any horror movie is once the secret is revealed, once the monster is revealed, if you want to go see it again and you feel like you can still get frightened by it, then I feel that's an effective horror but movie. But that's the thing is like, I this is not a movie I would see again to be frightened. Um, and it's, you know, I wasn't. I wasn't frightened. I mean, probably if, if you want to talk about like a visceral reaction, the things that are more effective uh, for me are some of the, the gruesome murders. I mean, there's, there's two that I, I really like um, the first, the murder of, of Edith's father um, where it, it turns out, well, you know, we initially think that it's probably Thomas, but it turns out it's Lucille um, just smashes his skull in on the side of that sink. And, really just like seeing, I mean, you see the full gaping hole in his head. You see, he goes, she the, goes full Joe and, Pesci on him. Yeah, really does. I mean, it, it's, and just that the visual, uh, sort of assembly that, that he has of he, he's bled into the sink, but then the, the corner of the sink, uh, breaks off and you just have this blood sort of running over the side on, onto him onto this tile floor in that athletic club. Like, really, really good, effective, um, murder scene, really top-notch stuff. And then I, I like, uh, Lucille's demise by the shovel at the end as well. Um, and, and, you know, I, I also really like the little elevator knife fight. It, it did what it needed to do. Um, I guess I, my recommendation today, which we'll get to, uh, here in a little bit, I think that that isn't an example of a picture that did what this one wanted to do, but just so much better. And it still retains its ability to fright on multiple viewings. Okay. I, I, I think that this one okay. undermined, I think you can be scary from a technical standpoint and then also scary from a psychological standpoint. When those two meet in the middle, you have a really magnificent picture. I think this one under the, the psychological, what he was going for there undermined the technical tear. But that's, that's my ultimate question. Do you think he was trying to make it technically terrifying? 
you know, even if he wasn't, I think if you if you do something that undermines something else, then it makes for a weaker picture. But how is it undermining if it's not the intent? That that's my like. Well, I, I I find it hard to believe that Guillermo del Toro wouldn't want to make a scary horror movie. Particularly everything that that he did beforehand, leading up to the reveal, was scary or tried to be scary. But he he lets onto the reveal pretty early on. It's just little bits of subversion throughout. It's not like he you know ch- takes this sharp turn and then suddenly it's like, oh look, the big the what a twist. We were in a different world, or they were doing something different. Like I feel like the audience is along with. Uh, what he's doing the entire time. Okay, well, then maybe that's evidence of either his ability as a director and his ability to subvert it, or it is just it didn't bring enough surprises. Okay, fair enough. I, I guess Because I, th- I think if the audience is ahead of the characters, then that undermines horror. If the audience knows what the, what's going to happen before it but does, that's, then that But that goes back to my point of, like, is he... I don't know. I, I don't feel like it's trying to just be a horror film, and I don't, I don't think that's the... Uh, even, I don't think that... The horror element is, I think that's dressing. I don't think that's the main focus at all. Um, but I, I think we're just going to be at, at different different ends of this. Um, Until we I, I both take wind it, up to be ghosts. Yeah, I, so I take it you won't be sleeping with a nightlight. Uh, at least, at least after, after I, this, no, I maybe. will be because of the Babadook. Okay. That, I've, I've been still, sleeping with the okay. nightlight for the past six months. Okay. Um, one thing that allows you to, uh, sleep better, I imagine <laughs> is the consumption of booze. So what beer would you recommend to go with this movie? Okay. So my recommendation for this is actually a bit of a, um, it, you know, it'll, I think it'll pair nicely with the movie. I think it'll pair nicely with, uh, the setting of the movie, which is, you know, these, uh, in cold, wintry Buffalo, New York and cold, wintry, uh, Cumberland, England. Um, but honestly, it's more like this is the last day of October and I have not recommended an Oktoberfest beer. So this is the, like, I, I gotta get it out there. And so I'm going to go with a classic it's Spaden Oktoberfest or Spaden Oktoberfest beer, um, which is you know, all one word because Germans, um, I feel like if you've had an Oktoberfest beer, you've probably had this one. It's sort of a go-to. It's certainly a go-to for me. Um, you know, I, I love the, the, the fall and winter beers, as I've said before, they're, uh, you know, kind of get some sweet malty goodness. Um, and I, I think this will pair nicely with it. Um, and I, I think it also just pairs nicely with the, the weather that we're coming into, you know, the kind of crisp chill in the air. It's a, it's a good late in the year sort of beer. So that's spot in Oktoberfest. Uh, check it out. I'm sure you can still find it, even though, uh, you're probably listening to this in November or beyond. Well, one thing that you should probably be consuming my recommendation for today is evidenced by Chris and my voices is some NyQuil. Now be sure to take your NyQuil, uh, in, in reasonable doses or maybe some tea with honey or yeah, or, or some tea with honey. See, I immediately go for the drug. Yeah. Well, ladies and gentlemen, Chris and I have differing perspectives on Crimson Peaks, so perhaps you can be the tiebreaker. Were you creeped out by it? Did you think there was more beneath the surface or did you think it was blah? Let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. But, you know, if email isn't your thing, we'd still love to hear from you. Ring the red phone and leave us a voicemail in your best impersonation of Charlie Hunnam attempting to hold an American accent at 484-424-6362. That's 484-4CINEMA. Stick around for special features when Chris and I discuss scary movies, two testimonies on terror. Try again to see this can remember what I had to do So I found some time to make this right 
trying not to dwell upon the lonely nights We're alone when the lights come on Take me down to the river We're alone when the lights come like horror movies, there's something seriously wrong with you. Let's be honest here. Horror movies' principal appeal is they provide a potent psychological blend of pain and pleasure, stirring up a sadomasochistic stew that's part schadenfreude and part self-flagellation. In horror, we the viewers take unspoken pleasure in watching unspeakable suffering being inflicted on others. Why? For the quote-unquote pleasure of being afraid. Sometimes the pleasure is seeing how much our stomachs can sustain, testing our immunity against increasingly absurd levels of gore. Other times, it's the spine-tingling suspense of staring into the darkness of an empty hallway, a closed door, or even our own souls, and wondering what is staring back. This isn't moralizing. It's self-diagnosis. Horror movies are screwed up, and so are those of us who like them. Horror stories are nothing new. Humans have been scaring ourselves stupid since the Stone Age, when our only defense against the darkness was the flickering, fading light of the campfire. Yet horror, as a distinct genre, is still relatively novel, literally. It was born in 1818 to doting mother Mary Shelley, who brought both a corpse and contemporary horror to life. Horror is the cultural older cousin to the cinema, and both were deeply influenced by kooky uncles like Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung. Because horror and film shared a cultural cradle, I contend that there's no genre more potently cinematic than horror. After all, which do you feel more deeply? Cheer from a good comedy? Inspiration from a good drama? Or the blood-curdling terror from a good horror? Chris, the simplest of all questions. Why? Why do we subject ourselves to the pain and pleasure of horror movies? I, I assume you're asking present-day Chris this, not... Uh... You know, teenage or, or young elementary well, school, Chris. Well, okay. Well, then let's actually start there. And bear in mind, we have thirteen dear listeners. You should know this. We have we're talking about this for thirteen minutes. That was intentional. <laughs> let's start whenever you were young. Why did you scare yourself? Oh, so we're going to do a Carl Jung, you know, sort of analysis. Yes, you should of probably this. lie on the couch while during this uh, okay. discussion. Um, you know, as as a kid, I hated horror movies. I I and I think we've spoken about. So this you avoided a, them then? Yeah, I I avoided them, and I avoided things that weren't scary but scared me. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, it, it was something that I didn't really seek out. And, uh, but some, for some reason, some of my fondest memories of movie going experiences when I was younger, and, you know, and this goes into even into high school, were getting scared at, at horror movies. I mean, uh, something like The Ring. Like, I, I'm, I, I believe when we talked about The Babadook, maybe I, mm-hmm. I talked yeah. about, you know, seeing it when I was 16 on Halloween night and being just freaked out. Um, and you survived and, a week and I, late and, you I, survived. and I survived. Yeah. I'm, I'm here to, here to tell about it, but, um, that was a really great experience. And I have since, you know, since maturing and growing up and becoming an adult, I legitimately think I now go to horror movies because I want that feeling again. Not, not a whole lot scares me anymore. And so like that is, there is definitely that primal, uh, urge to just have that, have that quick scare, uh, in me. But then on top of that, I think it's, it's a genre that when executed well 
is just so good, so fun. It's really great to experience with an audience as well. Just, you know, different people having different reactions to different moments. Well, it's funny I, you should say that because I, reflecting back on it, I think that Crimson Peak might actually be one of the first, if not the only horror movie I've ever seen with an audience. I usually see really? them on my lonesome. Really? Not not with not even with friends. Well, in high uh, 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 usually sometimes a female companionship. Oh, wink, wink, not judge. No. But anyway, so seeing Crimson Peak with an audience who were ha- were saying different things and jumping at different parts uh-huh. that was actually unique to me. Yeah, and I'm not sure I liked it better i didn't it was it was kind of in the middle i didn't like but, or but that's the thing is it's not really i mean my audience at least and and i as well like the the biggest reactions were from the actual like the tableaus of the deaths and those those sorts of scenes well, rather then do, than the, the horror well then when people laugh at something that normally you probably wouldn't laugh at whenever you're by yourself do you think it's the same with horror is you're more likely to jump i kind of felt that um that was I, I think it, i think it depends because i think there's also something about i mean watching the babadook at home alone you know in the dark can be just as scary i mean because it's of the well more so i would yeah. say so yeah okay so let me ask you why why do you what makes you seek out a horror movie I think it's one of those things, like you said, the the tropes, I'm so familiar with the tropes anymore that it's very, very hard to get me scared. And so I don't go for the low hanging fruit when it comes to horror. I look for, I try, I don't, the, the kind of the, what you might call the Eli Roth school of mm-hmm. torture porn, that does nothing for me. So what I actually look for is something that is technically well made that can scare me due to the efficiency of the mm-hmm. filmmaking. Okay. And, and so that's why I said at the start, and I'm curious if you agree that, or at least there's a point there that in many ways horror is the most cinematic of genres because it requires a good hand, a good editing ability, a good cinematography ability, good story, and the reaction it, gener- it generates from you is the most organic. Yeah, it's well, it it relies so much on the immersion. I'll. I'll- give you that. Like, I think, you know, talking about cinematography and that sort of thing, I mean, you can, things like the Blair Witch Project have proven that you don't necessarily need, you know, really immersive. Although I, I guess the argument, well, it's very, immer- that that's that, that, or I'm technically, sorry. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're absolutely right. Technically, you know, well lit scenes mm-hmm. with, with this, uh, you know, German expressionist lighting or, or whatever, like you can get away with it in many different ways. And, and in some ways actually stripping back to bare bones can be more effective, uh, because it makes people feel like it's a more relatable, more possible, uh, situation. Yeah, exactly. Well, and that's where the horror from the Blair Witch Project came from is because people legitimately thought it was real. And now the found footage thing has been done to death and no one buys it anymore. I contend that part of the reason why, even if we may enjoy Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein and Dracula, even if we may like them, by and large, they don't scare us so much anymore. There are exceptions, such as Nosferatu, which I think will be permanently frightening. But the which, horror which which one do you do you find the 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 uh, Max Shrek one is permanently frightening okay. the the Vim Vendors one is perhaps Vim, frightening Vim v- Werner or, excuse me the Werner Herzog yeah. one is permanently frightening just because you know of what they were probably doing to each other after the fact <laughs> and then Klaus Kinski I, I think I think they're both effective in in different ways and there is like there is something that's sort of almost playful about the the Herzog one but uh, still still very effective no I I think. F.W. Murnau's is really terrifying on on all fronts. There's there's nothing that like tips a hat or tries to get it whimsical. It's just like it's there to creep you out. And I think it's 
very wants to pull you in and never let you go. Yeah. So the the overarching point I'm making then is horror is a genre that has to expand the filmic language mm-hmm. because we get used to the tropes that scare us. And so yeah. in order to continue to scare us, they have to, in many ways, come up with a new way of shooting something or, and so or at least or at least a surprising way of approaching exactly that, and that so you have the you have the kind of german expressionism of dr caligari or nosferatu mm-hmm. and then you have kind of the blood and gore of the 80s and then once that died out pun intended then you get the uh, what then you get the found footage of blair witch project and now I don't. It's one of those it's things. It's the I don't torture really, porn thing, and now it's it's more the yeah of. than more the torture porn thing. So I'm curious what will expand language next. Maybe it is the Babadook. I guess that remains to be seen if filmmakers see that and are inspired see, by it. I, I feel like the Babadook is. It's not all that. It's not like it's reinventing anything. It's just very effectively, uh, you know, very well, effectively edited and shot and and put together. To where it's it's a very classic sort of horror Absolutely, film style, yeah. but um, but it just everything is working on the same wavelength and uh, and you know like the you mentioned earlier that stop motion sort of feel of the way the Babadook moves is something like that is never going to not be scary. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, and that's sort of like I think uh, John Carpenter's what 1978 Halloween is really effectively terrifying in a in such a strangely minimal way because so much of the terror is just you know Michael Myers is this silent uh big hulking uh force mm-hmm. and he's he's silent and he moves slow until he doesn't and then suddenly you know there can be a he's way off you know halfway down the block you you turn your head look back and he's right in front of you sort of a thing. And, and there's that, like it defies any sense of reality or any sort of, um, you know, you, you can't justify how it's working or the mechanics. And, and I think that's one of the most effective things that will, for my money, always be effective. In well, horror film I, I suggested this, uh, during the Crimson Peak, uh, discussion is that in many ways, horror is the most feminist of genres because, particularly in a movie like Halloween, but actually going back to Dracula and going back to Frankenstein and Nosferatu, it places the viewer in a vulnerable position. Mm-hmm. And there's in, so in saying and, women are weak hunter. No, I'm not saying they're weak, but it's one of those things. That's, that's one thing that you hear from a lot of feminist speakers is that women can relate to vulnerability mm-hmm. more so than a man can. So do you think that there's something there in that line of thinking is it brings us to a point of vulnerability, at least physical vulnerability? Uh, no, I, I think that's definitely, you know, the, probably the greatest draw of a good horror movie in, in the, you know, trying, you know, it goes back to that fright that, that, uh, you know, not being able to, in your mind, piece it all together. And, um, you know, there, there is something very, very primal about, about that, uh, that experience. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, we're, we're sick, twisted people that, that like putting ourselves in those situations. Well, and okay. So to that point, let's get, let's get to this part of the discussion. You mentioned it's very primal, the feeling of vulnerability. So in many ways, the horror movie that sticks with you the most probably says the most about you. So yeah. while I've been scared by many pictures and been impressed by many horror pictures, the one that has stuck with me and probably affected my life the most mm-hmm. is Jaws. Because the idea of being completely alone in a place wherever, and you know, I can swim all right, but yeah. it's one of those things I can't swim as well as a shark. Yeah. And land is nowhere to be found. I'm in something else's world and it has 
complete uh, uh, mastery and, over and its it, domain. And it might as well be that you're in outer space as far as like the – it's just infinite, you know, space of, of the ocean as far as, as far as you're concerned. Even if you're, you know, you've got your tether back to land and, and mm-hmm. can you can see it like – you're right and jaws even even if it's not just jaws but the idea of the the kind of genre that jaws introduced mm-hmm. which is the you know the sea monster kind of thing that has stuck with me to the point wherever when i was a kid i was afraid of the pool i'm not kidding i was pool, afraid i was afraid really? of the deep end of the pool and my mom whenever she took uh hunter's mom is a i guess the uh, co-star in this this show today <laughs> but whenever she took uh a relative of mine during the seventies to go see it. The young lady who was probably 10 at the time was afraid to take a bath. Wow. And afraid of shower, taking a shower. That's she so, effective. So afraid of jaws. So I'm curious, Chris, what one, not, not, not necessarily your favorite, but what has stuck with you the most? Um, I think we, I think I've brought this up before, but f- other than the ring, the ring has been very effective and I, I think it's still very effective. I've, you know, since revisiting it, uh, but maybe funny games, Funny games is and and it's that like it's not your what you typically think of as a horror movie. It's not a slasher. There's there's a little bit of violence, but not a lot. Uh, so much of what is terrifying about it is the implication of just what's going on. And for those for those who aren't familiar with funny games, because it's you know I I think people have seen it, but it's not it's not Jaws. It's not yeah it's yeah uh, you know one that just everyone associates with with the genre. It's Basically, this family goes on, goes to their summer house for vacation. These two guys show up at the door asking for eggs and then take them hostage and um, just sort of, as, as the name suggests, they they play with them. They play with their minds and they um, do the, you know, it's just all psychological games. Okay, then let's let's play a psychological game here. Chris, what do you think that says about you that that movie stuck with you so much? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's... Uh, what what Jaws has said about me is I'm afraid of fish. I'm, okay. I'm deeply afraid okay. of giant fish. I mean, m- maybe that I'm just uh, I'm always suspecting of of strangers. I don't know. Like so, it, 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 there there is definitely that. Like if I'm if I'm in a strange city all alone, walking walking around, like I am hyper aware of everyone that's around me, and so may, maybe that is that is part of it. But there's something you know, there's something about funny games that is so effective because it is so relatable. And, and I think Jaws is as well, you know, it's, it's that it's simple, but it's relatable. Like you could end up in that situation. Um, and yeah, just, it really like, if I'm, uh, sometimes when the doorbell rings it, you know, if the doorbell rings late at night, I'm, you know, the, the thought definitely crosses my mind. Like what if it's two dudes asking for eggs? At least I don't have a a set of golf clubs. Or what if tonight it's what it will be is a couple of kids dressed up and dressed up like Elsa asking for candy. Are you afraid of them? Will you be opening? No, we'll we'll be fine. (laughs) All right. Well, Chris and I could probably talk about horror ad infinitum. However, we were very committed to trying to make this 13 minutes. And I think we, by and large, uh, managed to do that. So we'll toss it. I'll just speed it up if we're Yeah, exactly. Just make us go in fast pace. Like Uh Zack Snyder, fast and slow. Uh So, ladies and gentlemen, we want to hear from you. What is the horror movie that's not necessarily your favorite, but the one that has stuck with you the most? And what does it tell you about yourself? Please let us know at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Stick around for our really rad recommendations. Coming up next. They should be spooktacular.
right, Hunter, recommendation time again. It is Halloween after all. You got something to uh, scare our socks off tonight? What's going to scare your socks off, what is truly frightening, is my pronunciation of a French name. Oh, good. So, I, <laughs> I have some French to pronounce as well, so we'll see how so this, this goes. So this is going to be truly terrifying, ladies and gentlemen. Brace yourselves. But in 1955, the Henry Georges Clouseau, I believe I pronounced that correctly. Not bad. Followed up his spectacular action film, The Wages of Fear, with a horror-slash-suspense picture known as Les Diaboliques. The less you know about this movie, the better. However, I will give you an overarching idea of the plot. It is about a cruel headmaster in a French countryside uh, whose timid wife and his headstrong mistress team up to kill him. That's all I'm going to tell you about it. Some of the history about it is almost as impressive as the picture itself. Like we talked about moments ago, in many ways, horror is improved by the expanding of the cinematic language. Mm-hmm. And so this movie might lack some of those jumps simply because the things that he created for this movie have been used to such effectiveness in other pictures after the fact. They have been aged <clears throat> since then. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'd certainly recommend, however you watch this, that you that you read the history after the fact. Another thing that recommends this picture, just to whet your appetite, is it's so inspired slash made jealous one of Clouseau's contemporaries, Alfred Hitchcock, that Alfred Hitchcock purchased a French novella and made Vertigo to make his kind of version of Les Diaboliques. And depending on your point of view, that's maybe the more permanent picture. But but at the same time, Les Les Diaboliques is certainly, I would say, one of the great horror movies, if for no other reason than uh, the expansion of the cinematic language. Mm -hmm. And you can currently find it for free on Hulu, and it's uh, also available on the Criterion Collection. So I would I, that would be my recommendation for All Hallows' Eve is surprise yourself. Watch a French horror picture from the 1950s and be amazed at how effective it can be at generating goosebumps. Yeah, I, I like that one a lot. It's uh, I would say it's more suspense for me than, than scary, but, you know, probably because it's some of those things have been uh, done by lesser masters since. Mm-hmm. Um Good, very good recommendation. Uh, so it's my turn to. Can you match my obscurity? Um, mine's actually pretty obscure from someone who is not obscure at all. Um, who was, you know, maybe maybe the biggest, probably the biggest star of his time. Um, it's from 1947. It's called Monsieur Verdoux. Um, I apologize for that terrible Mr. Verdoux. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Mr. Verdox. Yes, um, is is what it's called. It's currently streaming on Hulu, and it's a. Uh, Charlie Chaplin film directed by Charlie Chaplin, starring Charlie Chaplin as, as a, uh, you know, in his older age, um, he's kind of salt and peppery haired at this point. Um, it is a, uh, it is a talkie and it's a, it's a pretty good one. Like it's very different from, uh, his, you know, his classics like modern times or city lights or, uh, the kid or any, any of those. It's, it's pretty dark. I mean, he's playing a, he's playing a bluebeard. Which is why you know, and trying to make a little connection here, and it's it's one that I feel like a lot of people haven't seen. Um, it's definitely not the best Charlie Chaplin film. It it has some problems, but I do really enjoy it. I do really enjoy his uh, ambition in trying to place himself in uh, in a role that is totally subversive of the Tramp. I mean, he's he's this guy who's going around finding these uh these women who have no family 
and marrying them and then killing them off to, you know, take their money. You got to make a living, I guess, even Charlie Chaplin. And uh, it's it's pretty good. It's a pretty good, I mean, I would say watch it for, kind of like yours, watch it for historical context of, you know, where Chaplin's career went at the the latter parts of, of it. Um, certainly better than some of the others that I've uh, I've seen from, you know, when he, he's getting into talk, he's like, uh, Limelight is sort of a... Uh, sort of a mess of a, of a movie. It feels like he's just trying to say like, remember when remember the good old days, whereas this is, this is at least doing something different. And um, it, it's got some, some really great moments. So that's Monsieur Vedou, uh and it's streaming on Hulu right now. So spend your Halloween with a French movie and then a movie that is made in France. Yep. All right. Well, fantastic. Ladies and gentlemen, that wraps it for another episode of war starts at midnight. Be sure to check us out online at warstartsatmidnight.com. And there, you should also sign up for our weekly newsletter, The Midweek Memo. It's filled with recommendations, news about upcoming episodes, and exclusive articles written just for you. Like my latest, a very clickbaity article on the top five reasons for all the Batfleck backlash. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr at WSAMPod. And if you've made it this far into the credits, it's pretty safe to assume you like us. So why don't you stop what you're doing right now and leave us a review in iTunes. It'll help us reach new listeners and it'll send shivers of joy up your spine. Or if you're just a terrifying troll who's been hate-listening through this entire episode, well, tell us everything we got wrong at hello at warstartsatmidnight.com. Or you can give us a call on that bright crimson telephone at 484-424-6362. Music on this week's show comes from Sam Means. Check out his newly redesigned website at sammeansmusic.com and download his brand new single, We're Alone. Tune in next time when Chris and I take advantage of our license to critique with a review of Daniel Craig as Ian Fleming's James Bond 007 Inspector, co-starring Christoph Waltz. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. He had a pretty rough start with his English language debut, Mimic, the 1997 horror film starring Mira Sorvino and Josh Brolin. Who you might, <clears throat> who gave the performance of a lifetime as Brand in the, <clears throat> who gave the perform, <clears throat> Barbara Streisand's son-in-law, or wait, Barbara, yes, the joke's not worth it, just go for it. <laughs>